0: Please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three articles from the September-October 2020 issue of Allergy Watch, a bimonthly publication which provides research summaries to the college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. You can also earn CME credit by listening to this podcast. For information about CME credit or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai org/slash/publications/slash/allergywatch, and I don't want to forget mentioning that we would love to continue the discussion about these topics. There is an ACAAI community on the website DocMatter, where we could have key takeaways and engaging question-answer sessions for ongoing this conversation about today's topic. Well happy to start another episode. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm one of the co-hosts for Allergy Talk. I'm an associate professor at Emory University School of Medicine, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts. First, Dr. Curavilla.
1: This is Maren Curavilla, and I am an assistant professor of allergy at Emory University School of Medicine.
0: And of course, Dr. Stan Feynman. Hi, uh, everybody. Yes, thank you. i um,
2: in practice in Atlanta, Atlanta Allergy and Asthma. I'm a past president of the college and also current editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch, as well as an adjunct faculty at Emory.
0: Well, we've had a lot of changes. You know, school has sort of started virtual or not virtual. Another thing that sort of dates this podcast, there's always a little bit of delay when we edit it, but Dr. Feynman, I do have to ask you, overall, what you're feeling about the Braves? Well, obviously, we're disappointed once again this year that uh, three to we're three to not one, in the man. World Series. I mean, just so, like the Falcons, uh, like, what is going on with the city? I've only been here four years, and this has been very challenging for me. I, yes. I'm not used to this.
2: Well, you know what? I think if we uh, had a program about the uh, Braves and the Falcons, we would probably tie up another two hours.
0: Okay, well, we've got to get on to the real articles. I'm just saying it's a rude awakening, me moving to the city. But anyways... Let's get started to the real important issues going on in our specialty, and that is certainly asthma. So Stan, you have an article about asthma in young children?
2: Yes, correct. This is a, an article from the Journal of Asthma that was published a few months ago, uh, well, in 2019, as a matter of fact. But the, the title is, Changes in Asthma Severity in the First Year of School and Difficulty Learning to Read. And it's from uh, researchers in New Zealand, and it was uh, reviewed by Vivian Hernandez uh, Truillo in Allergy Watch. And the interesting thing is uh, we all know that uh, childhood asthma has been linked to low school you know, uh, achievement. In other words, there's more of a challenge. And previously, this, the authors have found that children with asthma, when they entered school, were at increased risk of being more than six months behind their peers in reading and the association was documented and they felt it really could be related to the asthma severity. So this particular study was comparing the reading achievement in asthmatic children whose symptoms persisted or improved during the first year of school. So they'd use parent and teacher interviews to assess the asthma symptoms and also the learning achievement uh, at day one when they entered school. And then a year later, They monitored 125 children, and the children uh, had tests for word reading and story reading. And then the reading achievement was compared to the 27 asthmatic children whose severity scores improved during the first year of school, and also 24 children who had worsening of their asthma, and then 74 non-asthmatic controls. So there are three groups. The kids who had asthma who got better the kids who had asthma who got worse and then 74 who were non asthmatic and they measured it at day one starting at school there's i think they start about five years of age and then they they measured it you know through the years and the interesting in new zealand they were specifically mentioned that in kindergarten in new zealand before the school they do not do any reading. It's a play-based uh, kindergarten, so they don't do any really reading, you know, preparation, so to speak. So uh, all the kids were theoretically on the same level when they started school. So the asthmatic children were more likely to have low reading performance, and on the word reading test, 58 of the percent of the children with persistent or worsening asthma were in the lowest. Core trial and compared to 30% of those who had improved asthma severity, who were also in that lower quartile for story reading. The percentages in the lowest quartile were 54% and 26% respectively. So very similar results in the word reading and the story reading. The associations were not related to potential confounders such as behavior problems, school absences, various life events, and parental uh, mental health. They statistically did logistical uh, regression models to take that into account. And, you know, for the lowest core trial, the odds ratios were 9.5 for word reading and 4.53 for story reading in terms of the factors that were associated with worsening or persistent asthma. So the children with asthma have lower reading achievement during the first year of school, and the impact is even greater for those with worsening or persistent asthma during the first year. So just to quote the article, it says, persistent asthma symptoms may negatively influence the process of learning to read. So the researchers write that in the article. Uh, They obviously say more work is needed to see better asthma control. And Vivian mentions here that she felt that the article shows that early persistent asthma is certainly a risk factor for low reading achievement. And, you know, we always have concerns with uh, parents when we treat children with asthma. They sometimes are reluctant to use the medication. So Vivian points out that we should be likely to help patients by relating concerns about the reading and the learning in patients with asthma in early childhood, showing them that if you have worsening asthma, it's going to even more dramatically be detrimental to their learning to read. So uh, I thought that was an interesting study, and I thought Vivian's perception and words were also very uh, perceptive in terms of analysis of the article.
1: That was really interesting, but was there any data about the demographics in the study?
2: So, you know, demographically, I don't know about that. I don't think that there were any particular, they were in a primary school, but they selected several different schools, and I guess they were able to collect the data here. So, I, I don't have data on the uh, on the socioeconomics or things like that.
1: Okay. You just wonder whether the kids with poorly controlled asthma were from uh, those of a lower socioeconomic status and are from like low-income families and whether it was, this was just another reflection of healthcare disparity with terms to asthma as well as like school performance.
2: No, you're right about that. I mean, we do know that, you know, those uh, patients who have, or children who have health challenges and, and challenges getting the care they need, lower socioeconomic, have even more strikes against them, so to speak, in terms of getting their learning up uh, to speed. So, But they, I don't think they didn't really, I don't remember them addressing that in this study.
0: And it certainly could be a vicious cycle, you know, the social determinants of health affecting the health of the child, and then that stress on the child pulling that child back. I mean, I can imagine both would be related, it wouldn't be very clean to separate those two influences.
2: Now you remember they did have controls at the same school, so um, I, I think you know there were there were appropriate controls, so I don't think that there's probably a big discrepancy in terms of the uh,
0: socioeconomic status so yeah, I mean c- certainly when I see these reports, I absolutely think that if these continue in our patients and potentially affect their own Literacy and ability for self management that certainly could have long term effects on their asthma control. That investment early in pediatrics, our role in pediatrics to provide early intervention to optimize health outcomes and asthma may also apply to just social factors that, you know, those investments early in their reading and development potentially could have significant impacts on their asthma control as well. So it's very, it's a very important lesson for sure. And
1: Stan, did I hear you say that there was no relationship with school absences?
0: No, they took that into account. So they controlled for that. So, uh, I mean, very important consideration that I, I think, you know, the, treating the whole patient is always a message for asthma that I think we always take to heart. Well, I guess we could go to the next article. And I thought this was very interesting, Marin. We're learning that potentially anti-IL-5 therapy does more than just eosinophilic control, which is I thought was very interesting.
1: Right. So I'm going to be presenting a paper that was published in Jackie this year, and Sherry actually reviewed this in Allergy Watch. It comes out of Harvard and discusses some just very interesting things about local antibody production in nasal polyps. So several different groups have already described the process of local antibody production, both IgE and IgG4 in nasal polyps. and It's interesting because we usually think of B-cell class switching to IgE to be restricted to the germinal centers and lymphoid organs, but there have been several recent reports that talk about local activation of B-cells and plasma cells and formation of even germinal centers within nasal polyps. And the presence of these antibodies tend to correlate with severity of polyp disease. And while there are several hypotheses about what these polyps do, such as activation of mast cells and basophils within polyps, it's still unknown what the regulatory factors are and what the consequences of this local antibody production are. The antigens themselves are also unknown, although IgE antibodies to staph enterotoxins have been linked to the pathogenesis of nasal polyps, and this particular endotype is associated with high serum levels of IgE and IgE positivity against staph enterotoxins and represents the most severe and recalcitrant endotype of nasal polyps, Up to 100% of patients with aspirin-excessive respiratory disease have these staph and IgEs in their nasal polyps, and this is often associated with a higher prevalence of eosinophilic inflammation. So the investigators sought to characterize further local antibody production in nasal polyps to try and figure out the factors that could be contributing to this production of antibodies within nasal polyps and to identify phenotypic properties of local antibody-expressing cells. And they obtained sinus tissue from patients with AERD, patients with chronic sinusitis with nasal polyps who did not meet criteria for AERD, patients with sinusitis without nasal polyps, and controls. And the study had several, I thought, very interesting findings, and I'm just going to highlight a few of what I thought was the most intriguing. Uh, First of all, nasal polyps in general just had much higher levels of local antibodies than non-polyp controls. In particular, IgE as well as IgG4 tissue levels were especially prominent in AERD patients, and the difference was quite remarkable. Nasal polyp tissue IgE concentrations were more than three times higher in patients with AERD as opposed to non-AERD polyp patients and 14 times higher in AERD as opposed to patients with chronic sinusitis without nasal polyps. And there is no correlation between concentrations of tissue IgE with serum IgE, suggesting that this antibody was synthesized locally. And the patients with AERD who had the most rapidly recurrent polyps within less than six months were the ones with higher local tissue IgE levels as compared to subjects with slower polyp regrowth. So then the others also tried to profile antibody-expressing cells with single-cell RNA-seq in a subset of three patients with ARD, three patients with polyps, and five patients with sinusitis without nasal polyps. And what they found in this subset was that plasma cells in nasal polyps selectively had greater surface expression of all things, they had increased surface expression of IL-5 receptor alpha on activated B cells, and this finding of elevated IL-5 receptor expression was especially prominent again in patients with AARD, leading to the hypothesis that interleukin-5 may actually influence the activation of antibody-expressing cells in nasal polyps and this process of local antibody production. So, in summary, tissue IgE levels as well as IgG4 were elevated in patients with AERD through a process of local antibody production. Higher tissue antibody levels were associated with much faster polyp regrowth, suggesting that these antibodies are functional and pathogenic. The authors found locally activated B cells within nasal polyps and a potential role for interleukin-5 signaling in B cell differentiation and survival. And therefore, interleukin-5 through interleukin-5 receptor on these antibody-expressing cells could lead to increased generation of antibodies within the nasal polyp tissue. And I thought this was interesting because it suggests that this process of pathogenic local antibody production in nasal polyps may actually be amenable to modification with anti-IL-5 agents through altering the survival and function of IL-5 receptor positive antibody expressing cells. And their findings, as Jerry discussed in Allergy Watch, may explain some of the incongruities associated with anti-eosinophil agents. For instance, while some studies of high doses of anti-IL-5 agents have shown efficacy in nasal polyps, pure eosinophil depletion with something like Pexol did not show any change in polyp size or symptom improvement despite tissue depletion of eosinophils within nasal polyps. Therefore, the role of anti-IL-5 biologics in nasal polyps may actually be through reducing these potentially pathogenic local antibodies within the inflamed tissue.
0: You know, that's just so interesting that, you know, we've always siloed IL-5 as eosinophils. And, you know, that's just opening something I've never considered before. The only thing I just always am curious about are what are these antibodies made against? Uh, Is this just random nonspecific activation of B-cells class switching to Ig? or are they going after something that we don't know about? I don't know, does anyone know what these antibody producing cells are making antibodies against?
1: So I think, like I said, we do know that staph enterotoxin appears to be one antigen that's definitely been characterized and correlated with severity. But beyond that, there are so many queries out there. I've read about autoantigens and really just other microbial antigens. And I think one thing that we do know, it's not your typical allergen ITE response.
0: So we can't skin test for it. I'm just kidding. <laughs>
2: Well, you know, most of the time when we do skin tests with nasal for patients with nasal polyps, they they really don't have have any reactions at all. But I thought it was interesting that the just blocking the eosinophil it's it's different when you block the receptor versus the eosinophil. That's that's very interesting.
1: Yeah, and and actually, like there was like several years ago, there were some uh, studies that were published in Nature that showed that eosinophils actually. Govern the persistence and survival of plasma cells through April. And even in the bone marrow, eosinophils have actually been shown to enhance long term antibody production of plasma cells. So clearly, there is just this relationship between potentially IL 5 and eosinophils and plasma cells that's just not completely
0: understood. But of course, taking a step back, I mean, how often do you use anti IL 5 receptor therapy for nasal polyps? We've started doing it. I
2: mean, well, no, I'm sorry, we haven't. But there's have been studies that have shown that. I'm sorry, we've not, we've not yet started that. I'm jumping the gun, but there have st- there have been studies, and it looks like it can be effective, and maybe it'll be approved someday.
1: So, I think there's an ongoing Phase three study for um, app for nasal polyps, and with mepolizumab, the data is really all over the place. Hmm. So for nasal polyps, I think, you know, there was the study in Jackie a few years ago, which showed that high doses of 750 milligrams every four weeks um, did shrink polyps for a long time to surgery, but then there have been discrepancies reported in other recent real life cohorts. So, I mean, I'm certainly not using it for nasal polyps. I
0: mean, you can give it less often. So it'd be curious and it'd be nice to have more options anyways. So, yeah, no, I, I would look forward to looking at that. It's always good to have more options for our patients. Well, I guess I'll go over the last article. And I'm going to tell you, if a food allergy article ends up in nature, we probably should talk about it. That's kind of a big deal, I think. So this paper also comes out of Harvard. A, the title of the article is Sialylation of IgE. Is a determinant of allergic pathogenicity. So, sialylation is a post-translational modification of our existing proteins. You know, we add sugar residues. It is just part of the processing of proteins. Some of you may be familiar with sialylation previously analyzed in IgG. There was some studies that suggested that of the immune globulin product that we infuse into patients potentially for anti-inflammatory effect. It's actually that sialylated modified IgG fraction that's primarily responsible for the anti-inflammatory fraction. So that's why I have to give so much, right? You need more of that sialylated fraction, so you have to give large doses of immune globin to get the immunomodulatory effect. But what's the relationship of this Modification to IgG was the question of this paper. And it comes from an intriguing problem we all deal with, and that is people have positive, significant Ig levels, but some people have allergic reactions and some people don't. And that's very confounding to us. It's frustrating. We try to use these tests, and but we see two people, and they have completely different reactions with very similar. IgG, and certainly we have some explanations for that cross reactivity and maybe a threshold effect. But this is asking the question: What about these post-translational modifications? So they actually took a step back and just asked the question: If you compare non-atopic patients with patients with Arh2 antibody-producing peanut allergy, what is the nature? of their IgE and interestingly, they do have higher levels of glycosylation, particularly this terminal sialylation is present in patients with peanut allergy versus non-atopic control. So they're actually fundamentally structurally different, but the more intriguing thing that they do here is they actually experimentally test this by removing the sialic residues and reverting to an acylated IgE. So they experimentally do this with an enzyme. It's a neuraminidase. You might remember that from influenza. But they use this enzyme and just cleaves it right off. And what they do is, is they do this egg anaphylaxis model you know, through installation of egg-specific IgE with or without this sialic residue and what they find is is that if you remove the acid residue enzymatically there's actually an attenuation of anaphylaxis i mean there is a reaction to the egg but it actually modifies the severity and you know they look you know they check the usual stuff right it's binding the same amount it's the same level of ige but actually the functional consequences of that is actually attenuated which was it's just very intriguing now they Looked the same thing at a human mast cell line. They actually put the silic acid residue back. It got back its allergic function. But one of the most interesting things that they did was they took that enzyme, that neuraminidase enzyme, and they stuck it to the Fc portion of IgG. And so, if you can imagine, if we if you have Ig receptors on your mast cells and basophils it's basically going to stick to that cell and it's just going to cleave off all the salic residues off of that. so that's what they did. They sort of delivered this product. And what they found was is that if you remove the salic acid residues in a targeted fashion to your mast cells and basophils, it attenuates anaphylaxis sort of like a proof of concept therapeutic. Right. And I just thought that was sort of fascinating that there's this Modification of allergenicity completely independent of allergen specificity. Just modifying the salic acid residues of your IgE can make you less allergenic. It attenuates mass activation in response to antigen. Now, I don't think anyone's excited about just cleaving off salic acid residues randomly in anyone's body. Certainly, I just told you that salic acid. Residues on IgG are anti-inflammatory. So what would that mean if you cleave it off of IgG? That probably would not be good, potentially. But, you know, you have this sort of new paradigm on how do we treat food allergy if someone is inappropriately making peanut IgE? And potentially, if we could modify somehow, if we do this targeted therapy, this proof of concept that they did, or maybe infuse acylated proteins of some sort, that modify the signal and, and they showed it actually attenuate signaling too. They actually looked at the uh, signal transduction through the IgE receptor. Then maybe we have a new line of therapeutics and we're always looking for ways to provide some sort of immunotherapy for our food allergic patients. So I'm not sure where we're going to head it with this, but it just, just opens up a new level of investigation that I just think it's so interesting and especially gives us insight on why are we making this observation where IgE level doesn't seem to correlate with clinical response. This might be another explanation.
2: Yeah,
1: I think I thought the article was fascinating. And I thought the way they designed the experiments was just brilliant. But um yeah, I think even just beyond beyond therapeutics, even just diagnostically, the ability to sort of screen and discriminate between potentially pathogenic versus benign IgE would be extremely useful. And you know therapeutic implications are also just yeah, it's it's it was, I thought it was a really interesting paper. When I first read the topic, just what I was thinking about was silylation and its relevance with respect to IgG, where, you know, I don't know if you remember this like a few years ago, but there was all this talk of, about how silylated IgG was responsible for anti-inflammatory effects. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I was actually expecting you to tell me the opposite, that silylation was protective against anaphylaxis because – I just remember the sialylated IgE was um, decreased signaling through the Fc gamma receptor and decreased the inflammatory effect. And
0: yeah, it does helps one doesn't help the other. That that's right, very confusing. Yeah. I'm not sure how to wrap my head around that.
2: So I just want to commend you. First of all, I want to uh, have you know, recognize that this was from uh, the journal Nature which is not a particular journal that we tend to review, but the fact that, you know, you covered it in uh, Allergy Watch and it shows that it was important, it's it's just sort of another plug for Allergy Watch that it's a good way for people to, you know, look at the a synopsis of uh, important articles for allergy.
0: No, I mean, again, I really appreciate Allergy Watch. I mean, just trying to keep our membership informed of all these things that are coming out. And especially, even though it's not at the bedside, you know, just understanding how things work is just very satisfying. We're all very curious people and providing these answers is just one way that we could just get a better appreciation of the beauty of the immune system. So again, I'm, I'm happy to do it and certainly it's taught me a lot. It's, this podcast also taught me a lot too, um, obviously working with uh, two other excellent colleagues here. So If you enjoyed what you listened today, please give us a rating on iTunes. Um, And also, we did get some feedback about some future episode ideas. So keep on sending your suggestions. The email address is allergytalk1word at org. And thank you so much for listening. And we'll catch you next time. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast. And it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Drs. Lee and Dr. Kangara have nothing to disclose. And Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI and Shire and has done research for Aimu, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.